This is the Access Jamaica podcast, Reasonings with Odessa, episode nine. Now special dedication to all dogs of dogs, dedicated to all top dogs, living the crew. Man called Tony Kennedy, man called Robert and Wilder Pats are riding through. Curfew! Sometimes I'm back and some of them are rally back. We are road wide, you tell me not take back the trap. Sometimes I'm back and some of them are rally back, but we are road wide, you tell me not take back the trap. You full of big chat and can't defend that. If a deal house you come from, we send in your go back. You full of big chat and can't defend that. If a Bellevue you come from, we send in your go back. Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? Sound the big thing. Odessa is back with another reasonings. This is episode nine, by the way. And yes, I am just, you know, keeping this thing going, 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 and flowing. All right, so Kanye West was here on the island. He flew in and he flew out. He did a really cool show at Emancipation Park. There was a lot of uproar. A lot of people were arguing with me on Facebook about Kanye. And, you know, I don't really care about his Trump politics. I'm just a fan of Kanye West, the musician, the musical genius that he is. There was two arguments. One that they, the government chose to have Kanye West here on the weekend celebration of our beloved Peter Tosh. And, um... Some people were like questioning if it's affecting the celebrations of Peter Tosh. Like many of these people don't even celebrate Peter Tosh's, you know, year or anything to do with 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 our dear brother, you know. So I don't even understand what the opera was. He had an amazing, there was an amazing event that took place for Peter celebrating his jubilee year the next day. So what was the opera about? Oh, merchandise. Kanye West came down, he had merch with the Jamaican code. Is it what we call it? The code of arms on the T-shirt with a map of Jamaica behind and some other jazz. But, you know, there was a big of an uproar. I think it slipped the Ministry of Culture and, you know, Auntie Babsy, as I affectionately call her, the Minister of Culture and also Gender, told them that they need to take that off of the site. It was taken down and everybody's moved on. So why are people still arguing about it? You know, mostly it was the people on Facebook that were arguing about it. those that listen to my podcast and those that are on Facebook, you know who you are. Anyway, Jesus is King. The album by Kanye West is out right now. And um, I listened to it. I like it up to track eight. And that's it. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be moving on because I have an amazing guest. This man doesn't really give interviews. This man don't really talk to people that much. This man just makes music. And he, we're moving on from Kanye West, one musical genius, to another musical genius. I was very honoured to sit down and talk to the one and only Salam Remy, producer extraordinaire. He's just amazing. He's a Caribbean man. And yeah, let's just get into this. Reasonings with Odessa with Salam Remy. we good we good all right so reasons with Odessa I can't believe I'm sitting in front of my homeboy who's hands down one of our musical geniuses of this generation run the nation with version <laughs> thanks for taking the time out Salam to come and link with me man I'm very happy 
That's cool. You make big man blush, so I'm just going to grin. Oh, gosh, man. Oh, oh gosh, man. Let me talk in my Bajan accent, man. Oh, gosh. The Wackbar Bills. Yes, we have to keep up the Caribbean thing. So I'm going to kick it off um, because a lot of people don't know. I, I don't even know. How many instruments do you play? I play the basic rhythm section. Um, I play drums since a baby. I play bass pretty much. Bass, drums, guitar, keys for the most part. And then fiddle around with other stuff, percussions and things, of course. Um, but that's, you know, four or five, I guess, is the main thing. And that's a lot. That's a, that's... So I'm starting to play a little horns, but I'm toying with it. But, you know, that's the next frontier. So who, you was taught by icons. Who taught you to play the drums? Like, you, you started at three, right? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, you know, the thing is I was born as my father is a musician and his brothers were all musicians. And then my mother and her sisters all sang and her brothers were musicians. Damn. So where I actually came from was my dad was in a band with my uncle, my mother's brother. What's the, the name Nassau. of the band? I think at one point they were calling it Stone Free. So uh, that was pre-conception of me. And then that's where I come from, you know, basically musical side of both sides of the family. And then by the time I was young, you know, I was playing the trap drum set, as they referred to it at that time, you know, not hand drums, but trap drums, and being able to play a basic, you know, disco beat. And on my third birthday, my dad took me to the music store, and Elvin Jones saw me kind of playing with some drums, and basically put together a drum kit for me. Wow. So that was the start of my uh, having a real drum kit, you know. That was pretty much kind of like what Questlove kits are now, where they're made small enough for a kid. He puts together a floor time and stuff and made a kit for me that I had. That's what he did for Sean Paul's son. He sent him a little mini little kit. Drum kit, right. Yeah. You know, and I actually use those Questlove kits on Records Bill, Questlove. But, you know, it reminds me of when I was a kid and I had those that little tone to it. When did you have, when did you get your first, like, keyboard? I, I was reading something about you carrying a keyboard to school. <laughs> um, I got that in seventh grade, so that would have been, I was 11, 1983. Um, I had a keyboard that I was able to not only play on it, but I was able to program the drums in it. So I basically had a keyboard where, you know, it's still Casio sound. Yeah. It was a little Yamaha keyboard that my dad, I think, my dad and my uncle bought from Japan. But actually in the keyboard, I could program, you know, whatever I thought was the hip-hop beat, to change the key and do all that, you know, slang tang type stuff, pretty much. But I could program it and do stuff with it. So I've pretty much been programming since I was 11. Wow. And yeah. what was your first track that you actually made? I, like, when did you make your first, like, um, your first beat? I was making, because see, the fact was I could play drums. So I actually was making beats as soon as I had a drum machine, which would have been uh, probably 85, I got a Roland 707, and I was able to kind of program whatever it was, but I understood it from messing with the little Yamaha keyboard. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I had records, I had things I'd done, but the first thing that came out that I worked on was a record that my dad was working on with Curtis Blow. How did that happen? On the Kingdom Blow album, so that ended up becoming my first production, technically, and my first writer's credit signed up to ASCAP. It kind of had that stuff going on. At what age was that? Like I was 14. Damn. So that was that part of it. But then I was making better records, in my opinion, as demos with me and my friends. And then by 89, when I got out of high school, I was like full-fledged in it, in it. But prior to that, I just kept learning. I was 
a, a thing where I wanted to learn and figure stuff out. So I put the time in, you know, and I really was making sure I had more than 10,000 hours of each different aspect of it. How, so music is like, you eat, breathe, shit, 24 hours, music. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't say even 24 hours. It's just the fact that it's a language that I'm versed in. You know, there's some people that speak the unspoken language of music. And I just think I was blessed to have it in my bloodstream to where I could hear something and feel it mm -hmm. when I don't even know what it was. And then just taking the time to know how to recognize it and execute it. So it's just a whole other flow. We're going to go into your father, your legendary father, Van Gibbs. Like, for those that don't know anything of Van Gibbs, can you tell us who this man is? I know who Van Gibbs is. Um, you know, so it looks different for me, Dad. But, you <laughs> well, it's the same situation with me. Understood. So, so, so it's a dad thing. But basically, my dad was a Trinidad. He was born in Trinidad. His father was from Barbados, born to Trinidad and mother. And he grew up there. When he turned 18, he went to America. When he went to America, he was in bands and stuff all through the 70s. Ended up playing like on disco records and different things. And then he turned to go into more into the music business. So he worked on Jazzmobile, worked on disco records, kind of different things. But then he got, you know, bad deals. So then he actually went to intern at Arista Records as a big man. Then he became a promotion person um, who, you know, then built up, was a Northeast regional, you know, worked with Frankie Crocker. And whatever it was, he kind of excelled at it and was a people person, but as well as a creative um, then he went on to, you know, manage many people and pretty much do all the label stuff. But in that journey, um, you know, he's the first person to take Dougie Fresh in the studio. Dougie mm -hmm. Fresh's first song was an 82 a song called Pass the Duchy. That was a cover of... Musical Use. Musical Use Pass. Well, no, actually, their version was called Pass the Buddha, which is the slang for right. weed at that time which was a cover of Past the, the Duchy, Duchy, which of course was still Cutchy Rhythm. Yeah. And then he had Sly and Robbie, who he was helping out. You know, he was helping out Gwen Guthrie and different people in the early 80s. And Sly and Robbie actually came in and cut the rhythm track. And then Dougie Fresh went to the studio and rapped on it. And that was pretty much probably one of the first reggae and hip-hop raw fusions yeah. that came together. Yeah, Where you really had the Jamaican musicians and then a kid from Harlem that didn't know nothing about it rapping over it trying to cover a song. But um, it happened, of course, hip-hop comes from reggae, reggae exactly. and dancehall, but that was like one of the first I, I want to cut that. you and just say, like, finish this. Hip-hop is, and what was the first hip-hop track that you actually heard that was just poignant in your life, that's just life-changing? Hip-hop is, finish that. So hip-hop for records, I would say, is, is Rapper's Delight. Um, that became the record that everybody knew, hip-hop, hip the hop, the hip-hip-hop. That was where it was, you know, at the time Rappers Delight came out, um, I was seven years old. So what was happening in the Bronx and what was happening before that, I heard remnants of it. I saw it block parties, I heard music coming, but that was the first time I heard a song and it came back the exact same way. I didn't have a popular rap tape for my generation prior to that record coming out. So for me, Rapper's Delight is the start. And that was mine too. That was exactly was mine. And growing up in the UK, hearing that, it was just, it, it did, it just, changed, it just changed my life. And it was just like, this is, even though I grew up reggae background, who my father is and stuff, mm -hmm. I'm very much a hip hop head. I'm very much a hip hop girl. So 
Yeah. All right. So how did you come to meet Funkmaster Flex? So um, in my dad's travels and workings and buildings, um, he started managing Chuck Chillout. Um, he was doing promotion and doing different things. And Chuck was on, you know, one of the radio pioneers for hip hop on the radio. Red Alert and Chuck Chillout were on Kiss FM in New York. And Flex was actually one of Chuck's, you know, drivers pretty much. Like he would <laughs> drive Chuck around. Where well, I need to go over here, I'm going downtown. Flex is, you know, one of the DJ and he was DJing in a group that Chuck was managing mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, some of Chuck's neighbors, Deuces Wild was the name of the group, and Flex was their DJ. So from the time that I had moved in with my dad, I got out of high school, moved with my dad in 1989, Flex was always running around with Chuck. So to the point where sometimes Chuck was being irresponsible with his time and his life, <laughs> and then he wouldn't show up to stuff. So then it would just be me or Flex kind of taking Chuck's energy. Chuck could have been in the studio more, which he had an album that was on my dad's label with Cool Chip, mm -hmm. and then he could have been at the radio more. So Flex and I pretty much were built off of Chuck's foundation, uh -huh. but we just kept our consistency and our hunger there. What is it about Funkmaster Flex that, what is, what did he mentor you? How did he mentor you? How did he shape you to, what did he teach you about like? Um, I can't even say that Flex really mentored me. I think it was more that we came up together. Mm. So while he was, it's almost like a selector and then having, you know, the, the person with the sound and knowing what's what, I would be the one that wrote down the records oh, that we were at the radio yeah, station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would write down the records and give it to him. We were using my turntables. He would be doing stuff, but then when it was time for him to go into clubs and he was getting hired by Puffy yeah. and different people to do stuff, or when he finally got to Hot 97, I was the person that knew how his radio show should run. So I knew how to produce the radio show. Or I knew what should happen. I'd be standing with him in the booth at a club, and I'd be like, yo, Leaders in New School walked in. No, Buster just walked in. Play Leaders in New School. I would be watching the crowd and knowing what he needed to do. And by knowing better what the DJ needed to do, then I was able to produce records better. So basically, the same thing that happens and what I'm excited about, even in, you know, when Jamaican music was like, you had a dance on Friday or Saturday, mm -hmm. and a song would play. And when a song played, people responded to it. They liked it, they liked the music, whatever it was. And then the next week, the dance is coming again. So all during that week, you're like, nah, we gotta get this better. You know what, this guy was over here. You know what, we did good, but now it's almost like being the trainer in the corner. So I would be the person that would be at the radio station with Flex or in the clubs during my early part of my career, but also, I knew how to go home and make the records that would work for the club. Yeah. Not that my friend was going to play it. Mm -hmm. No, that I knew what he needed to now kill next week. So everything, if, if people, if you, if you listen to every track that Salam Remy has produced from Nas to Fuji's to even Amy Winehouse, there's always an underbed of reggae underneath it. Why, wow. is, why, is, that, why is that so special for you to do? I think that what happens is, you know, growing up in New York, um, Jamaican culture is kind of part of New York culture. You know, when I went to the store and I was mentioned the other day, I was talking to a veteran artist and I was like, yeah, I used to go to J&M Records in Brooklyn. <laughs> and in J&M Records, I could walk in and I could see a Sugar Hill record, but I also could see a Yellow Man record. And I wanted both, you know what I'm saying? I wanted the Yellow Man songs at the same time while I wanted the Sugar Hill records or whatever the current, you know, the Enjoy mm -hmm. labels. I started to recognize the 12-inch 
just look of the sleeves from a rap record and I could see it from a distance. So I wanted both of them. Um, so for me, you know, always having a tenth of something, you know, Shinehead, which Shinehead meant for what hip hop radio felt like, but then what he was doing on the dance hall, you know, toasting to mm -hmm. and singing, Shinehead is New York to me. You know yeah, what I'm he is. He's a lot of other stuff, but he's no, definitely he's New York. Definitely and the Rough and Rugged album means so much across the board to me that that's part of where it goes. So I feel like the hint of reggae culture and all my music is there. And then also as I began, you know, producing reggae artists, it's like it's just foundation. Number one, the rhythm should be boom, it should be something that's in there, captures an emotion. Number two, what's this conversation? From the intro or the first few lines of a song, you got to tune me in or I'm tuned mm -hmm. out. And then the third part is make sure that that mix is sonically kicking. You know, I always say right make sure point. the bass line is heavy like my bottom. There you go. <laughs> Balance out your life. You don't want to get dizzy. Yeah, exactly. So then you go and you get both sides of it and you say, cool, as long as you have all those things. And that's the basis of all music to me at this point doing is good. But, you know, I was able to find that balance through reggae because that's what I was working on. Favorite, like, all right. Everyone says that Spraga is your favorite dancehall artist. Is that true? Um... That's odd for me to say. <laughs> so Spraga is definitely um, one of my best friends, period. I would say he's my favorite dancehall artist. I don't know if I would say that. Because everybody I that, that I talk to, like, I know Spraga Salam's favorite. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I... people can't figure out my favorite rapper. And then people get that wrong all the time. Like, <laughs> Who is your favorite rapper? There you go. So people would assume it would be Nas or something. Like, I yeah. love Nas. Slick Rick's my favorite rapper. Oh, and this, no. again, Slick brings a little bit of the hip-hop and the Jamaican vibe together. You know, he grew up around, he used to live around the corner from my dad. Literally up the road on Lady Musgrave Road. So big up Slick Rick, there yeah. You go. So with Slick Rick, I feel the the energy of what is there. Um, who's my favorite DJ? I, honestly, I have to say Super Cat. Why is that? What is it that you love about Cat? Um... I don't know, just the way, I mean, because, oh, of course, Cat hasn't put out as much music as, say, a Spry Guy is still mm -hmm. making number one albums right now, Big Up Chilling Guy. Yep. But at the end of the day, you know, those songs and what they meant and how they hit me, boops, Nuff Mind of Dead, you know, I, I told Cat recently, Nuff Mind of Dead is probably my song. He's like, well, you work on Get a Red Hot. I was like, I worked on Get a Red Hot, but Nuff Mind of Dead is my tune. Like, yeah. that's how I feel about yeah. it. And I just feel like, you know, Cat, Cat and Slick Rick got something in common. I don't know what. Okay, cool. Well, everybody else, Nas and Spraga got something in common. Yeah. Both my boys, those are my contemporaries. But there's something before me that inspired me to really go. Hmm. I think because you, I don't know, but you and Spraga are very kind of got an aloofness about you. When I met Spraga, people were like, Spraga don't talk to people. So why is he talking to you? I'm like, I don't know. When you're a man that don't, you're not a man of many words with, with is, everybody. We talk a lot. It's just that we ain't talking in front of everybody and we ain't trying to be the loudest person in the room. Right. Spragg will be really quiet till he gets on stage. But in general, he talks to people when he's ready. That's what I'm saying. But like, he don't talk to everybody. But he don't talk to everybody. Nah. <laughs> we stand back. But honestly, Nas don't talk to a lot of people. But if you catch Nas by self, he's going to have a real conversation with you. Yeah. And then he'll dip off. You know, there's still a... Um, there's still a mystique, I guess. Yeah. In certain ways, it's not because we're trying to be mysterious. It's like Dave Kelly with his aloofness as well, and Dave can talk a lot, but Exactly. Just... The last time Dave came by my yard, I thought he was going to stay for half an hour. He stayed <laughs> for like three, four hours. He gifted me some beautiful koi fish. Thank you, oh, Dave. Oh, And the Kelly family for, for uh, gifting me with their pets, and I've been 
you know, working on those things. But at the end of the day, yeah, if you have something good to talk about, then you talk. And if there's nothing good to talk about, I decide what conversations I want to have. Yeah. And you can ask me whatever you want to ask me. Because you told me that. You you said to me, you're in debate. You used to do debate debate club. I mean. Like, how? how? No, but I was in high school. I was in debate. I was on the debate team and I was on the mock trial team. Not because I wanted to, just because I was able to. What was was it about debate that you like? I don't like to debate. I don't like to argue. But I know how to drop a one-liner that will make you leave me alone. It's just like a sound man. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, even if you're writing songs, there's a long, 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 long set of lyrics and feelings. Mm-hmm. But then, what are you gonna say right now that gets to the point? What's the title that wins? Mm-hmm. That's it. It's gonna just tap that emotion. Yeah, right and it's there. like, oh, that's really you talk for half an hour. Okay, cool. But what you really said was this. Ah, oh, that's what I meant to say. Done. Uh, so that's you know, if you have a long story, that's cool. But if the headline's not right, I'm not reading the story. True. True. Why well, can have clickbait headlines? Yeah, like, not clickbait because we're not bait for anybody. Now be another one. Uh-uh. All right, so Amy Winehouse. I'm a lot of people like the newbies that know you. Like, oh, he produced for Amy Winehouse. What was it like? What was Amy like? I asked you this question before, but now we're we're doing the podcast. What was it like? What was it about Amy that you really loved? That you really loved about her? Um, just as a person, Amy was jokes all the time. Like, you couldn't sit around her for 20 minutes and she didn't say something ridiculous that's going to have you crying. All the time, she could sit there and look at the situation and, you know, she had a great memory. You know, she got along with us. uh, You know, I'm a Virgo rising Taurus, but we got along on some earth signs to sit back and watch, decide who we want to talk to. But Amy had jokes, and if you listen to her songs, really, you know, what locked us in the first session is where that I let her say what she want to say. She'd be like, I can cuss? I'm like, yep. Uh, I can say whatever it was. And so then now she'd be challenged me. I'm like, so what you going to say next? What you going to say next? What you going to say next? And she would take it to the next level every time and make it better. And that's where we won. We won by her being able to say how she felt without filtering it. Which is really what music should be, as far as I'm concerned. Should be, with a great melody and some yeah. positive wordplay. You know what I'm saying? And she's a great writer. So her writing and her singing was there. But as a person... Just jokes. Like, she called me on Skype in the middle of the night when everybody fell asleep, security, everybody fell asleep. And she's like, oh, you're still up. It's 5 a.m., but it's only midnight for you. Hello. Yeah, so what happened was today, and then I literally be like, okay, cool. You know, I'd be working sometimes. And she's just, my phone, my uh, computer start ringing. I'm like, oh, do you have up? Do you have any unreleased music for Amy? Nah, not really. Um, nah. I mean, whatever happened when she passed away in 2011, I tried to put together anything that was almost in that shape mm-hmm. to put out for the Lioness LP because I wanted to leave her passing and everything in 2011 and then being a fresh base in 2012. That was my goal. So there's no real song songs like that. You know, there's maybe other versions of things that came out, but they came out in the versions that they were intended to. Um, but no, nah, it's not anything like that. Okay, well, so... Not for me. Listeners, how I how I knew Salam when I first heard of Salam Remy was through my cousin Sipo, who used to manage Aini Kamozi, the great Aini Kamozi. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what was it like working with Aini as an artist, and how did you come about producing the Hot Stepper, the big Hot Stepper track? Um, so it was a kind of a connection to a connection to a connection. 
Basically, um, there was a manager named David Sonnenberg. Okay, that was my dad's ex-manager. There you go. <laughs> so there was a manager named David Sonnenberg in New York, and he had this group called Natural Selection. Natural Selection was one black guy, one white guy. They were renting our studio at one point in New York, because my dad always kept a studio. And I was, uh, at the time, living in an apartment above the studio, living in like you know, pretty much an apartment above the studio. So he has me making beats, and he said, Dag, those are the type of beats we need. We need real hip-hop. And they were really a pop group. So then he's like, hey, would you mind meeting my manager? So I'm like, all right, cool. And they had a hit at the time. So I went up to David's office on Riverside Drive in the mm -hmm. city. And mm -hmm. when I get there, he's like, hey, so this is a scenario. And he tells me about the group, and he plays me a song. And I was 18, but I was like, mm, you know what? I don't need to take your money. Keep your money. The song doesn't need a remix. It's already good as it is. Thanks a lot and goodbye. And he was so oh. impressed that I turned down his money, number one, and just told him the record doesn't need that. It's a pop record. Let it be. Thanks for meeting you. And, you know, was ready to walk out the door. That when Sipo um, brought Aini Kamozi to him, the first person he could think of that might be able to do some work with Aini Kamozi was myself. So then he mm. came back around and we struck a deal to create some demos. Hot Stepper, the fattest Burrell version, was already a hit and things were going mm -hmm. on. But now he found himself in New York and they were working on different things. So then Aini would be around, you know, pretty much chilling in the projects or somewhere on the low. But he was watching um, all the rappers, you know, DOS Effects, Cypress Hill, everything that was going on, and this would have been 91, 92. More like 91 into 92. So he would be looking at Day One Effects by DOS Effects, mm -hmm. uh, Cypress Hill's holding, uh, holding Your Head and na 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 So that's what na 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 So the, uh, directly the na 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 how can I just kill a man? All yeah. that stuff. That is directly where he took the nine, 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 nine. Ah. Everything. I'm the lyrical gangster. No, all the, no, no. you know, I know what Bo don't know is a Das Effects could have been lying, but it wasn't. It was Ainey's version of doing that. And we put together a track that initially had a very hip hop feeling when it was there. And it was cool. We had that and we had three or four other songs that we were shopping. Um, Atlantic came with a deal, but it wasn't enough money for Ainey to be able to move to New York, and it was just a low budget, so sorry, Craig, we didn't do that. And then eventually, Ainey had moved back to Jamaica, and things kind of looked like they went away. <coughs> but meanwhile, I was doing a lot of work for Columbia Records and working on Shaba and Patra, remixing Supercat, working with Maxine Stone, a bunch of things. And what ended up happening was they had an album compilation called Stir It Up. Mm -hmm. So I said, hey, maybe the song could go and stir it up. Maxine was like, wow, okay, I'll try that. And then I brought David back in, and David got a deal for World of Girl, right. David style. <laughs> and then I'm like, hey, what about the Ainey record? So they put it on the compilation. And it wasn't really going anywhere yet. And then I remixed it and put Heartbeat underneath it. And at that time, Hot 97 is just starting up. Mm -hmm. And Flex and Angie Martinez are there. And after one of the radio shows, like on a Friday night, I played them my four-track version from my house. I'm like, what you think about this? And Angie's like, I like that. So I went back home. I ended up sampling Heartbeat. Backstory and Heartbeat real quick. My dad produced a lot of records. He produced or arranged an EP, LP for a woman named Tana Gardner who made Heartbeat called Work That Body. 
if you look at the records that says arranged by Van Gibbs, right. there was one leftover track that wasn't used on the album oh. that my dad pretty much made off of It's a Shame. While we were away in summer of 79, he was hanging out with the royal family of Monaco and one of my dad's <laughs> extravagant trips and working, you know, playing with, uh, I think, artist Vivian Reed or something there. We were away. We come back, they put out a record. It was the track that my dad had already created that was left over. Oh, wow. So when it was time for Here Comes the Hot Stepper to now become the hit that it was, the biggest selling record on Heartbeat as a sample, the deal was different because I didn't realize it to that depth, but my dad had created that and they'd gotten not credited properly and didn't get much oh. credit for it. And it was cool as the 80s hit, but the 90s hit really made, and I was actually able to go back to something that my dad did and flip it. So Here Comes the Hot Stepper comes out, and he's like, oh, so this tune is going on? cool but after a while he's like yo there's something about this that seems like it's gonna be you big know. he's like at first i thought it was just an 80s hand clapping tune or you put that underneath it okay cool but it really took up and angie martinez mentioned it to the program director it was on hot 97 my dad being a promotion person he got around the box in houston we ended up on a bunch of radio stations and to this day it's one of those songs that just just you know, blew up it just took over Took over the Smurfs doing it in Swedish, the <laughs> Wyoming, every country, everywhere else. But, you know, once again, it was a fresh energy. It wasn't, it was the first uh, pop number one record on the Billboard that had one of those 80s loops prior to Puff having mm -hmm, hits like that mm -hmm. and everyone else. And we were ahead of the curve because of the blend of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a great time. It was just was like no one would expect a roots reggae artist like Aini Komozi <laughs> to be on a number one pop record like that was not at that time and no. then for me it was also i was in the clubs with flex and then also at that time with bobby condors so we would have sets and the set was the reggae that was coming out of jamaica was very strong at that mm -hmm. time in the early mm -hmm. 90s so we had a strong reggae set mm -hmm. then we had a strong classic set which would be heartbeat kenny burke riding to the top gap band outstanding those records would still play and then we had hip-hop that was going on at that time so for my first set of records that I worked on with Bobby Condors, it would have been my Bobby Condors, Mikey Jarrett, Mac Daddy, Get a Red Hot, and all those things. So what I decided to do was I left it alone for a while because I got bored. I was using all the hip-hop samples and putting them right underneath the raw Jamaican artist's vocals. Mm -hmm. But then I said, look, we're going to go between the classic section and the reggae section, and now these songs will now be the bridge. So before, you were going to play Heartbeat in the Party anyway, and you might have played Aini Kamozi's Hot Stepper, guess what, I'm going to make the record that connects them both. And now how you get from the heartbeats, the classic section, into your reggae is that you play these songs. Thinking like a selector. Yeah. So I always thought like a selector and I was a remixer, so I knew what to do. And now I created all these songs. So I did South Central for Supercat with the Gap Band. Mm -hmm. uh, Shabba's Let's Get It On had Don't Look Any Further. Like I just used all the records that made sense. My last podcast, I had Bully Daniels and DJ Buck on the show. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about why reggae, they feel it's lost its heyday when you were putting out great music and in the 90s as well. Like, what do you, what, what, not even reggae, I should say, dancehall, because I think reggae is doing very well right now. Mm -hmm. What's your vibe with today's dancehall and the sound? And what, what do you think can be changed a little bit? So first, I'll, I'll go bigger than that mm -hmm. and say that music in general right now, um, 
not just dancehall, hip hop, for instance. Well, they said that as well. Right. Yeah. So hip hop in general, um, you know, what's become pop? Whatever was hip hop, always trickled into being the new R and B. Then that trickled into becoming the new pop music. It's just mm-hmm. a, a culture up upstream. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? The biggest hip hop record of the week got on a. R&B, Mary J. Blige record, and if it didn't make it there, then it went to Mariah Carey record, and next thing you know, it's the style that everybody's trying to copy. You know, whatever was happening, whether it was Teddy Riley, whether mm-hmm. it was Timbaland, whether mm-hmm. it was R. Kelly, that's how the motion goes. Um, hip-hop at this point has been very trap-oriented, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily travel around the world well. The Certain people like it, but you're in the same sonic frequency. The bass is where it's carrying all the energy. Not everybody's listening to bass. But then it's these melodies have to kick through. And being that everything is really auto-tune based on a lot of vocals, it's almost as if you're singing through a harmonica. <laughs> when you go to harmonica and it's in the key of F, yeah. you cannot play anything outside of the key of F, so yeah. you pretty much get a... <laughs> so you're stuck in that space. Not literally, but you're in the things, which is great for a sound mm-hmm. and to do something. But when everything is that way, it's almost like we've made things robotic. And there's no home cooking. Mm-hmm. So the balance is that when you transfer that energy that's happening around the world into what's happening in the dance hall, there is a space where there's a trap hall, dance hall, blend of what's happening around the world that comes back. But what's missing is somebody still has to have, when you beat the wall, come through the mic. <clears throat> so it's just a sonic thing. I think it's a sonic thing, and it's a balance of, you know, at some point, there were reggae people, and even dancehall from the 80s when you had Roots, Radix, and everything else, mm-hmm. and then when Drum Machine come take over, mm-hmm. I'm sure some people was cussing yeah, Computer well. Paul. <laughs> they was cussing Computer Paul. Yeah. Yo, the on the swing, on them high yeah. Like, what's this? There was a point when Steely and Cleavy were doing stuff, right. and I'm sure prior to it really taking over, when Steely used to be in Roots, Radix as a band, and him and Cleavy now going and killing the whole track by themselves. Yo, the whole we used to get five hundred dollars. Now you only have to take three hundred. <laughs> just you know, I'm sure there was a cussing. It but, was. And then also it was a, a robotic sound to dance hall, but the swing on it and the emotion in it and the well, sonic. We still had a baseline. And you had a baseline, but it was still moving a certain way. Mm-hmm. So those things would develop. At this point, I just feel like we could use a bit of balance so that everybody hears it and. Everybody has to do their thing. I'm not knocking anyone that's I, doing... I like trap for I, the I, club. I, I don't knock anyone that's doing what they're doing yeah. on any genre. All I say is I can't complain unless I'm contributing what I want. I agree. That's so if right. I like it and I want to do something better, we'll just spend my money and do it. And if you like it, you come over here too. If you don't, stay with it. All right. Now let's go. We've got Do It For The Culture. Do It For The Culture. Do It For The Culture. Tell me why did you... Why are you doing it for the culture? Why have you created this brand mm-hmm. and we're going to go into the Red Bull culture clash as well. Okay. So basically for me, um, when I turned 40, I went to work to Sony for five years. I had a label louder than life that I started. Did really well. Um, you know, Mac Wiles, I had Jordan Sparks, I signed a bunch of alternative groups. I had Hiatus Coyote as a jazz group or my Flying Buddha mm-hmm. label. I put out things myself. We got some Grammy nominations, and then we had a huge uh, billion, couple, few billion streamer with Omi's Cheerleader, which is, you know, from here, you know, specialist. Mm-hmm. And I go back to the Shaba days, almost mm-hmm. 30 years. 
And then when he had a new project, you know, prior to me going to Sony, we were working on some things with Omi. And that was able to still be a huge, huge, huge record mm -hmm. that Sony still does massive business with every month, every year. It's a, it's a huge record. And, you know, number one on the Billboard pop charts for six weeks. Mm -hmm. Not one, not two, nothing. Six, six weeks. weeks. It was big, massive, big global. Song. So in that space, I really felt like, okay, cool. I wanted to have a label that did well. I ticked those boxes. And then I got to the point where I'm like, well, what am I working for now? Why am I doing this? I'm not doing it for money. We're all right. I'm not mm -hmm. doing it for hype because men are like people. <laughs> I'm not doing it for um, a lot of other motivations. Why am I doing it? Because it's part of the culture of how I speak. It's part of the culture that I came up from. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to give away 50 records and put them online and not worry about the money. So I did a rap album. I did all sorts of stuff. And out of those 50 songs came a song that I did with Miguel called Come Through and Chill. That, you know, rather than me going to the label and saying, boom, give me my 50 grand, no. Mm -hmm. No, I was just like, yo, let's just put it on SoundCloud. Matter of fact, let's put it out. That same song from 2016, part of my Do It For The Culture and where I created this cover and this, you know, set of words for, got its Grammy nomination, then went on to be on his album. We added J. Cole, it's gold. It was a success for me because me doing something because I thought it was the right thing to do actually turned into accolades later on. It was the perfect blend of commerce that came from creativity. And in it was the right pure. Place. And that's where it's at. And yeah. for me, doing things that are the right thing for the right reason is there. So at this point, do it for the culture. This year, we started off, kind of started last year with Black Dog Streams of Thought, but we put out Nas and Amy Winehouse, Find My Love, uh, Gallant, Roll the Dice. You know, I've put out EPs all through June with Bodega Bams and uh, Joel Ortiz and all these different projects that, you know, Terrace Martin and I did a jazz EP mm -hmm. that's just jamming. We did what we wanted to do. And right now, I'm in the reggae segment. We started in uh, July. We put out my Thirsty Rhythm that had Buster and Major Hype on it. And just <laughs> so those things <laughs> That we just having fun and the songs and ideas I had. But now I'm really getting back into the other part of it where I'm dealing with um, the Red Bull Country Clash. Woo! Do it for the culture. And at the end of the day, as I stand in front of it, because sometimes you need to make your intention known before you walk in the room. Amen. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, so just so you don't get it misconstrued, I'm here for the hype, I'm here for the money. No. I'm here for pushing the culture forward that I want to hear. And that's that. You know, culture ultimately will continue to grow and grow and grow. So I didn't, again, I mentioned it in the last podcast, if you go guys and listen, but you tell me why you have these, the team that you have and the team that you have, they all are integral parts of your life and your career. Right. So we can kick off with Spraga, what we were talking about, and then we can... Well, I'll, I'll, break, I'll step back one step and say that with the do-it-for-the-culture aspect of it, when they came to me, they talked to me about hip-hop because, of course, I produced Nas, loads of records, and I've produced for many, many hip-hop artists, many, many R&B artists and pop artists. But being that it's a culture clash, they want to dance hall, soca and hip-hop um i can do that but then my history is also i've produced a whole lot of reggae so mm -hmm. starting from the beginning with me it was like cool you know if i'm going to do a culture you know what it would even be different if it was in miami if it was in miami i might have dealt with it differently because i know the crowd is in miami mm -hmm. but we're doing red bull culture once you put the word clash and kingston mm -hmm. together kingston clash 
So we think I'm gonna walk down here flat foot and die. No, 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 no. We're not showing up in no clash in Kingston with some trick daddy and some oh, no, 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 that's not with some Uncle Luke. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're doing. Ooh. Oh, what we're doing is turn around the other way. You just got an idea. <laughs> and then what, what, what we're doing is I was like, all right, cool. Black Scorpio and I have been working together since Mega Bands and Soundboy Killing mm -hmm. in 93. Scorpio's like my dad, my mm -hmm. other dad. You know what I'm saying? They have me as a son from then. So I'm like, oh, Scorpio, Clash thing. Clash, would I love that? <laughs> November 2nd, my birthday too. What? Oh, Lord. <laughs> no, 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 what? I'm going to cancel my birthday party. So I can be in the clash at the oh, same time. Wicked. So Scorpio's birthday is November 2nd. Boom. Member number one on my team. Which, you know, like I said, no new friends. These are all people I work with. Mm -hmm. and more than I work with. We was almost like family for a long time. Secondly, we have Josh Snowcone. Snowcone, the same time I met Scorpio, he used to, there's a sound in New York called GT Sound, which Snowcone um, was actually one of the selectors on the sound. So then he would be coming to the studio and then eventually over the years, you know, he would stay with me in New York and be my vice president of Ray Ray, my label at the time, <laughs> Boom Tones. So I would always be like that. And when any artist would come to New York, yo, you know, say such and such in town. Yeah. Yo, make me book a hotel. Tell me we can change some ticket and come vice. Yeah. Cool. So the snow cone all through my, from 93 back to 2000 and whatever it was, anybody that came to New York, it was always me and him vibing with the artists and my right hand to the point where his production understanding and songwriting levels kicked up and then he went on to produce Temperature for Sean Paul mm -hmm. and you know right now Rich is right written with Riley Box theme and I love Riley Box yeah right and with a bad busy signal and yeah. enough things coming yeah. up big up Earthworm but ultimately Cone is my right hand and always been so for a certain amount of people that know me from back then if you see me you see Cone if you see Cone you see me mm -hmm. that's that family so Scorpio Cone there Spraga, same thing, from the first time we worked. I think really we worked when he was on Capitol Records, so that would have been 94. Mm -hmm. From the time Spraga came in, me and him been tight, you know, straight through, and our um, creative chemistry has always been there. And, you know, we just been the best of friends, you know what I'm saying? Through everything that's going on in his life in general, we've been locked in for 25 years now. So 94 to now, directly 25 years. So them three is that. Mm -hmm. Boom. Bambino, as many people have gotten to know him now from being on the radio and doing commercials and everything else here, prior to him moving back to Jamaica and doing this, he was in Miami. And when he was in Miami, we don't spend Hurricane together. <laughs> I can't I have to get off my house on the beach because Hurricane coming I'm over Bambino house. And I stay with him and his wife. And yeah. yo, we're in here. What we doing, yo? Yeah. We're making up Hurricane songs. <laughs> Bambi, only we, we, we can't tell them the Hurricane song. They have to go through a Hurricane. Yeah. We made up Hurricane song, all type of stuff. Bambi, may going to ask you if you do it for me, you know. He's going he to tell you. Exactly. <laughs> it's a nice song. I guess but anyhow <laughs> but like I said me and him always linked up and then he was working with my label I put out um, tunes with ghosts and different people years ago friendly rhythm even some things I ain't put out yet because I got enough tunes I ain't really share yeah. that's another story but anyhow <laughs> Bambi was on my team from at least 2002 2003 so we got there and then Disco Neil who's the last member of the team who some people don't know but he I did didn't it. I didn't who is this but, guy but Neil DJs a lot around Miami, enough for different clubs, and he kind of does some parties and different things here. But he also was an intern and an assistant at my studio okay. for many years. Prior to him getting his superstardom, he was always doing stuff, but he's just been in it 
and builder. So Neil's part of my team because as he's in the current mix and current market and produce some tunes out there now that some people want to hire the credit, we're going to big you up. Disco <laughs> Neil's part of my team because he's been part of my team. Everybody I'm talking about got keys to my house. Friends to the end. This is where it is. When the food cook, everybody eat. This is not nothing new. This Amen. is all my team. So that's the core of my team. There are other people who are going to come in and support. Odessa. Yes, Odessa is here. <laughs> and once again, me and Odessa go back to her brother them. Yeah. And big up Saeed and Luke. And I'm, I'll Papa be, I'll, I don't C4 mind repping the only female on the Do It For the Culture crew. Exactly, exactly. Because you know, Clash Life is my life. We're going to work with the surprises because nobody can know with business, right? <laughs> no, exactly. Nobody. Exactly. Nobody. Right. Stay so. So basically, you know, that's it. And that's my team. But, you know, we're all focused on that. And then, you know, everybody's got different things going on. Like I said, Scorpio's birthday. Spraga just come off a number one album. Cole New Rhythm of Boss. Bambino have enough stuff that he ain't even show people he could do yet because he's working on his radio thing. And I'm happy. I'm happy for that. So for me, you know, it's just me and my team. And then our next step is to once again put things back for the culture. So everywhere I'm going, everybody I'm linking, everything I'm doing is back to the culture that built me. Because the work that I did in the reggae records from 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, all that stuff built the rest of my career. That turned into Amy Winehouse, Nas, all that stuff. All right, boy. Well, you know we can go on. We're going to do a part two, but I told you I want to do the part two in Miami. All right. With some rice and peas, some Sunday oh, dinner. there we go. Put with man the to Sunday work. dinner. The put man to work. Yo. Salama, people that don't know, they can throw down. And you know who, who gave me the secret was Chris Smith. Uh, He's like, yeah, I'm at Salam's house right now, eating Ray, Ray, Ray. And my counteraction for him was, I'm at Screechy's by mm. the beach. And he's like, all right. Work all right, you're right. in, you're in. Yeah, but we have a beach too. We talk about that. <laughs> all right, so this is Reasonings with Odessa with the man, the main man, doing it for the culture. Salam, Remy. Bless up. Bless, bless. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for listening to that episode of Reasonings. Thank you so much, Salam Remy. Banana, big time producer. Um, I also would like to thank my Drinky Poo sponsors. I'm drinking white rum and orange juice right now. It's just, I feel so mellow. Anyway, guys, don't forget to subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts or listen and, you know, just press that follow button on any podcast platform you choose to listen to. Until next week, I'm your host, Odessa. Linkage laters. Peace.